Hey there, Rev Divers. This is Taya Moheiser, co-host of Rev Dive. And today we're going to be talking about surprise billing. And I've got to be honest here. I have recorded this session probably four times because this is a complex little document here. And I say little, meaning it's only 400 pages. And some of those CMS rulings are quite hefty. So if you didn't spend your holiday weekend reading through all of this information, let's take a little bit of a deep dive into surprise billing. So this interim rule that was pushed out on July 2nd would become effective January 1, 2022, and this falls under the No Surprises Act of 2021. Basically, this rule would ban emergent surprises. And when you hear the word ban, the words ban emergent surprises, it may leave you with quite a few questions. So really what this means is that providers are required to bill emergency services on an in-network basis. This means we're not going to require prior authorization for emergency services. This also means that we're not gonna balance bill patients for out-of-network rates. So that way, cost sharing for patients is going to be the same, whether they're provided in network or out of network, whether the service is emergent or non-emergent. This is also going to cover ancillary care team members. So if you've ever received those bills or perhaps issued those bills for out of network anesthesiologists or pathologists or surgical assistants, this is going to prohibit billing those individuals as out of network to patients. And the reason for this is because a patient could not reasonably understand, expect, or even change out to an in-network ancillary care team member. So that's the reason behind this implementation of the rule. There is, however, the opportunity to have a patient waive the balance billing protections that are in place, at least that will be put into place by this law. Now, this process means you have a very friendly, very easy to understand document that is mindful of health literacy of patients. This is a document created for the layperson, and it fully explains to those individuals that they are waiving their protections of no balance billing and agreeing to pay out-of-network charges. This can't be used for emergency services, and there's also some ancillary services that are going to be prohibited from this, but you do have that opportunity. Now, if you're going to do that, just keep in mind this document does need to be something that can be understood by the general public. Likewise, providers need to disclose all of their balance billing protections to the public in a way that's easy to understand. So think of your, your notice of privacy practices and where you have that published and how you have that written in a way that's easy for individuals to understand, because now you're going to have to do the same thing with your balance billing protection. There are a few changes in here for insurance payers. For example, now, within 30 days of receiving a clean claim, the insurance company needs to either create an initial payment and send that out to you or send you a notification of denial. There's 30 days to do that after they've received a clean claim. Now, this is meant to speed up the process by which patients are notified of their responsibilities. Obviously, we're not always going to agree on anything, especially when we're implementing 
implementing new rules regarding surprise billing. So there is going to be a complaint process. There is going to be a dispute resolution process and arbitration, but it hasn't quite been fully netted out yet. Notably, 25 patient advocacy groups have already submitted their recommendations for the arbitration regulations. And providers still have 60 days to comment on the interim final rule. Now that's 60 days from July 2nd. So if there's a portion of this that you really want to dive into, please make sure that you get those comments in before that time period is up. Now, the impetus behind all of this, uh, if you weren't following the, the huge push behind No Surprises Act of 2021, is that surveys were showing two-thirds of bankruptcies were related primarily to medical debt. The number of individuals who have gone through complete financial ruin due to medical debt is just astronomical. And the stance right now of CMS is that no patient should avoid seeking emergent care because they're concerned about financial ruin, which is quite understandable. So take a look at this rule. You, you don't have to read through all 400 pages. Now, obviously, we, we always recommend reading through them, but you don't have to. There's a ton of information out there. Health Leaders Media has posted a little survey summary. Fierce Healthcare has posted a great article. Becker's Health has information out there. MGMA typically will send out a, a summary breaking down everything. So make sure that you get ahead of this one. Again, it's going to go into effect January 1 of 2022. It falls under that No Surprises Act, and it is going to ban a fair amount of emergent surprises. This is even going to cover some of those transportation services, right? So um, those life flights, those ambulance rides, things of that nature are still going to fall under those that ban of emergent surprises. So if you are in that area of healthcare where you do perform billing for emergent services, whether it's transportation or it's actual medical care, please make sure that you dive specifically into those sections of the bill, as opposed to just reading the summary, we would highly suggest reading through those sections or alternatively all 400 pages. So if you have questions, we encourage you to reach out to us. Kim and I both have our LinkedIn and Twitter all posted up there, but the best way to get your information, go through your associations, navigate out to HHS and CMS and read those summary documents. CMS also has a summary notice posted, which is a much easier read and could point you to some of the higher points of this, of this change. So please dig in. This is going to be an important one. And the next time we follow up with Claire from MGMA with her spill from the Hill, we'll try to dig in a little bit deeper. Okay. So we're also going to talk about one other piece of, of pending legislation that we're looking at. And that is the OSHA COVID-19 emergency protection standard. Now, this is a document that was pushed out by OSHA, and the guideline really is to create processes and protocols which maintain safety for healthcare employees regarding COVID-19 specifically. And this would require facilities to create COVID-19 plans, designated safety coordinators. It requires a few different uh, logs that need to be done in addition to ongoing patient screening and management, um, health screening and management of employees. It includes some ventilation requirements, even evaluation of your HVAC systems, 
um, physical barriers, a lot of components of PPE, which most of us already have implemented. Um, there's just a lot going on in this standard. So we really encourage everybody to go out and take a look at this. Now, OSHA recently pushed out a emergency temporary standard chart. And this flow chart, which you can find at osha.gov slash coronavirus slash ETS, this chart will identify for you whether or not you need to comply with the emergency temporary standard. So again, that's osha.gov slash coronavirus slash ETS. Now, there are quite a few things on this flowchart, which really indicate that either you need to comply with none of it, some of it, or all of it. Now, there are pieces of this that seem a little bit duplicative, but really what you wanna do is, is take a look at it from this standpoint. If you are a healthcare provider, healthcare support service or facility that is providing care to patients face-to-face, -face, then you most likely need to comply with some or all of this provision. Now, this is getting a lot of pushback right now because a lot of the protocols that are being put into place either are things we already have into place, things that we already have in place because of general OSHA standards, or they're in direct opposition of other OSHA standards and really not as strict as other PPE requirements that OSHA has in place. So for example, the American Hospital Association and MGMA have both already reached out to OSHA asking for more time to submit comments and more time for employers to implement these procedures to comply with the emergency standard. The reason being these are significant changes in policies and procedures. These are requiring significant changes to your workflow and to your patient flow in your facility. And this even includes for home health providers, which makes sense. I think the challenge with this is, is that it was built with great intentions, but some components of this just don't make sense because in healthcare, we have already kind of dived into to the components that need to be put into place from a policy and protocol perspective to keep our employees safe. So it seems like this needs just a little bit more refinement. So we highly encourage you to take a look at this document. If you have comments, please get that feedback into them so that they can include those comments. Uh, one of the things that is nice about CMS HHS uh, OSHA is that they do read through the comments and they do take those things into consideration. If you have not already, please voice your opinions to your local associations, whether it's a specialty association or a management group association, and let them know if any components of this COVID-19 healthcare ETS give you pause or give you cause for concern. There's also a great healthcare worksite checklist and employee job hazard analysis that you can evaluate. If the ETS is going to apply to you, which you can evaluate on the flowchart, then it takes you through a list. It's about 10, 11 pages um, for your safety coordinator to complete, which will take you through all of the things that you're going to need to look at 
right? You're going to need to evaluate where workstations are, whether or not face masks are worn by employees, and if that's over the nose and the mouth. Um, if face masks are required, have you provided each employee with a sufficient number that were FDA cleared, that were authorized by an EUA, et cetera? So there's a lot of really detailed information in that checklist as well, if you feel like you're not getting it by just reviewing the standard. So please take a look at this information. There's quite a bit of concern from some. There's some heavily lobbying for this to get pushed through. I think the primary key here is that we're doing what's in the best interest of keeping everybody safe, employers, employees, and patients. So if you have some feedback or some great ideas as to how this could be improved, make sure that your voice gets heard. So that's a lot of legislation for you today, RevDivers, and that's all we have. We look forward to chatting with you again soon. Thank you so much for joining RevDive.